Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. So, hey. Hey. Yeah. Hey, I'm still rocking those uh, studio headphones. Should be, man. Yeah, they're and great. Sweet. They are really sweet. People at work are asking me about them, too, which is kind of cool. Oh, good. Yeah, good. like uh, I was showing them around at work and uh, showing them how uh, portable they are and uh, and how easily they connect to my phone. It's just like hold the button in for five seconds and boop, it's connected. Is that it? Really? Yeah, yeah. it's really cool. I'll have fun showing them off before I take them. Steal them. You're going to steal those studio, those studio Regent headphones. Black. Do they only play Phil Collins Studio? No, they so, will actually play any music that I play on my iPhone. They will play. Because I really love that song. Though. You do love Studio. I love Phil Collins. <laughs> I wish we could actually play it without getting sued. Right? The, yeah. I just pretty much did. <clears throat> if you want to pair your own. You can go to studio.com and uh, enter our discount code, dark poutine, all one word and all uppercase, and it'll give you a 15% discount on your purchase. No, you can, because I'm stealing yours. You're not stealing my headphones. Too late, I stole them. Where'd they go? Yeah, exactly. With that, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Dark Poutine. With me, as usual, is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Well, hello, everybody. Hello, Scott. Dainty Scott voice. Little dainty Scott voice. Yeah, yeah. I'm petite. Brittle. Oh, let's not talk about my bones. We don't need to... The world doesn't need to know everything. I think... I think... <laughs> maybe that's how I should refer to you in every single episode, my brittle-boned friend. Yeah. Yeah, it's true world. Scott's got osteoporosis. Early onset, actually, I think it's osteopenia. They kind of waffle back and forth, but whatever it is, the end result is I have weak bones, like an old lady. Exactly. Yeah. Not not to be well, concerned. Or maybe an old man. Well, osteoporosis is primarily uh, and affects females, older females, primarily Asian statistically, apparently. But uh, and uh, you are none of those things. Meh. Caucasian? No, doesn't work. But uh, just, nobody needs to worry. If I fall down, nothing's getting broken. It's not that bad. I broke e a hip. Yet. 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 Yeah. I eat lots of milk. You eat lots of milk. Yeah. You do drink a lot of milk. Uh, not too much anymore. A lot, of, a lot of cream. A lot of cream in my coffee. In your coffee? Yeah. Yeah, I go through like a one liter every two days. That's a lot of cream. It is. Seeing as they close in the grocery store over here. I know. But they're going to open up something else. Uh, more economic place, I hear. Sure. So, you know. That remains to be seen, <laughs> as long as they have cat food. <laughs> whole foods. It's going to be whole foods, not economic. Yeah. Well, let's get to it. Dark poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish, as our content contains mature themes, harsh language, and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. Listener dis discretion is strongly advised. I hiccup there. Yes, we might talk about chubbies and yippies. Not, not, not this week. Oh. Uh, we're not experts on any of the topics we present, nor are we professional journalists. We're just two regular Canadians who are interested in the dark side of Canada and Canadian history. 
So, and I realized that I say so and um an awful lot. Yeah, were you listening through the edit there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you do. I'm very sick of hearing myself <laughs> say that. Yeah. You know, so am I. It's your go-to. It really is. <laughs> I'm I, going to try I edit to out, stop. I, I would edit out a lot of those for the public consumption. Yeah, people would just never listen. <laughs> oh, we all have our things. Everybody's got the... Words and phrases they say all the time. Well, I am going to attempt to extricate that that word and fr- phrase. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an animal bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. So 21. Dear Lord. Right. How'd that happen? Yep. So our podcast is old enough to drink in the United States. <laughs> I, was, I never quite got that. They'll give a 17-year-old a, a rifle and send him off to war, but he can't have a drink. Well, that makes sense to me. Why would you want to combine those things? I guess so. <laughs> uh, in this episode, uh, we're going to tell you about the three largest recorded landslides in Canadian history. Ooh. Interesting, right? Yeah. So they're the Frank Slide from 1903, the Hope Slide in 1965, and the Meager Slide in the, in 2010. And Meager is kind of an ironic name because it's the bigger of all three. <laughs> it was not in any way meager. No. Uh, the first of the massive rock slides, the Frank Slide, took place uh, along a 1,300-kilometer stretch of highway linking uh, British Columbia and Alberta. Hmm. It's officially called the number three highway, but it's been nicknamed the Crow's Nest Highway. Yeah, I'm pretty confident I've been on there. For sure. I'm pretty sure if you traveled to Alberta when you were a kid before the Coca-Cola was there. Yeah, we used to do that uh, every year, every summer. Absolutely, you probably did that. Yeah. Uh, the building of the railway and the early 20th century coal mining boom drove the development along this route. Mm. So going west to east, uh, the crow's nest starts in Hope, BC. And uh, what movie was filmed in Hope, British oh, Columbia? Oh, Rambo. Exactly. I have a, I have a Rambo story. You Okay. Uh, before we get going, tell us your Rambo yeah, story. Yeah, it's short uh, for me. Like um, you. Ew. Uh, when I was a young tot, we, uh, I used to go to camp. I was probably like eight or so. We'd go to, it was Capilano, by the Capilano uh, suspension bridge that around that area in North Vancouver. Okay. And, uh. Was Rambo there? Yes. One day we were going for a hike, uh, and we were going across the Cleveland Dam and right off to the side of the Cleveland Dam, they were filming a movie. And so I'm eight. And we're all just kind of like, what's going, you know, we're, wow, what's going on? We're just amazed by the, this production going on. And we asked the people there, oh, what are you making? And they were saying, oh, we're making Rambo. Okay. And we're, we're just like, oh, who's in it? And like, oh, Sylvester Stallone and we, you know, Rocky fame. So we're like, oh my God, Rocky's here and yep. Rocky's here. And it was just neat, you know, little kids out for a hike. Did you see him? No, no. Well, well I might have. He's probably my height. Okay. Inside in this industry, Joe, he's short. Is he? Yeah. Are you sure? Well, quite, yeah. I've never met him. No, so that's quite, know. that's that's the, uh, one of the, <clears throat> the jokes about him is that he's quite short. Like Tom Cruise. Yeah. Yeah. 
thus the I was a child, same height. Uh, Another short actor is uh, Al Pacino. Oh, really? Carol calls him Little Shoes Big Hair. (laughs) Apparently that's from somewhere else, but she she adopted it. That's great. And uh, yeah, he wears like his lifts in his shoes and he teases his hair up big. As you should. Yeah, make himself look taller. Yeah. So anyway, going east to west, the crow's nest starts in Hope, B.C., where they filmed Rambo, and snakes through places with names like Princeton, the Soyuz, Grand Forks, Castlegar, Creston, Fernie, Coleman, where Carol's family is actually from, Coleman, Alberta. Oh, really? Alberta. Oh, yep. Neat. Pincher Creek, Brockett, Lethbridge, Tabor, and Burdette, before ending up in Medicine Hat, Alberta, which is home of... Trevor Linden. Right. He's the former team captain and current president of hockey operations for the Vancouver Canucks. Yeah, one of my gods. Is he? You pray to Trevor. I do. Yeah, I do. Oh, well. Yeah. Well, the 94, that cup run. Oh, man. Trevor Linden, two goals, game seven. Black eye, like broken collarbone or something missing. Did they win the Stanley Cup? No. They were goal short. Nathan Lafayette hit the post. We could have won. Uh, but uh, yeah, Trevor Linden, like he just, like that was the epitome of hockey. Yeah. Him. So he's from Medicine Hat. So 1,300 kilometers worth of road. One of these uh, massive slides, the Frank slide, took place in Frank, Alberta, which is a part of the Crow's Nest past. I've never heard of Frank, Alberta, actually. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to like drive through these mountains and see historical sites and uh, natural beauty and all that kind of stuff. It, this is the place to go. Like I've been, I think as far as maybe Oliver, I might've been to Creston. Mm. I'm not entirely sure, but, uh, we usually take the Coquihalla when we go to Alberta. Yeah, so. same. Yeah. Yeah. The Frank slide not only happened first, it was the deadliest. Frank Alberta in the mountainous Crow's Nest past is not the community it once was. It's currently unincorporated, which means it's no longer a town mm, or yeah. village or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, according to the 2016 census, it's now the home of only 85 people. Oh, wow. However, in 1901, two Americans, Sam Gibo and F- Henry Frank, who the town was named for, opened a coal mine and incorporated the town at the base of the Turtle Mountain. The population quickly swelled to 600 mm. over the next two years as young families came seeking their fortune in the coal mines, and others opened businesses to support the miners. Yeah. 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 Legend has it that the two predominant indigenous peoples, the Kenai and Pikani, both of the, both branches of the Blackfoot Nation, mm-hmm. refused to camp in the shadow of Turtle Mountain, calling it the mountain that moved slowly. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting, yeah. right? Uh, they said the mountain, quote, walked and that an ancient battle at the foot of the mountain was ended by the mountain itself when a rock slide came down, crushing the combatants. Oh, wow. The natives were afraid of this mountain, so what better place to build a town? <laughs> right? Let's not listen to... Uh, yeah, people just, who have been here for yeah. thousands of years and have a really good understanding of the place. And named it the Sliding Mountain yeah, or the something. Ma- the mountain that walks. Yeah, and, you know, maybe maybe take that to heed. Yeah. On the morning of April 29th, 1903, at 4.10 a.m., the Turtle Mountain Thrust Fault gave way and a huge cracking sound filled the air. A massive block of rock, consisting mostly of limestone, fell from the top of Turtle Mountain. This huge slab, 30 million cubic meters of it, came smashing down onto Frank 
it was a kilometer wide. Wow. Yeah. It was 425 meters high and 150 meters thick. So it wasn't just a little pebble. Wow. This was like half of the mountain. Jeez. And it weighed approximately 82 million metric tons. That's a couple. Yeah. That's a couple. The valley was buried at an average depth of 14 meters deep by rock and debris and all those kind of things, but as much as 45 meters up to 150 feet at some points. Wow. That's insane. Yep. With this volume of rock, the province of Alberta's Frank Slide Interpretive Center claims you could build a wall one meter wide and six meters high all the way from Victoria to Halifax, <laughs> literally across the country, 4,300 miles. My God. Yeah, that's a lot of rock. Wow. People in Cochrane, Alberta, over 200 kilometers away, heard the sound of the massive rock slide. It's said that the uh, slide itself lasted just over a minute and a half, and considering how far flung the rocks were, it's estimated that the slide was traveling at least 120 kilometers per hour. Holy cow. Yeah. So Can you like, imagine? It's just like mud, rock, boulders. It's coming boulders, at you too. Like, and if you've ever seen video of that kind of thing, the rock and debris takes on like a liquid form. It looks like liquid. I have, yeah. Yeah, it's very crazy. Yeah. Looking. Although initial reports were that the whole town was destroyed and everybody died, that's not the case, thankfully. Oh. Of Frank's 600 inhabitants, 100 were in the direct path of the slide. Again, from the Interpretive Center site, destroyed were seven miners' cottages, Six inhabited at the time on Frank's easternmost street, Manitoba Avenue. All of the surface buildings of the Canadian American Coal and Coke Company, a construction camp, a dairy farm, two ranches, a shoe store, a livery stable, the Frank Cemetery. That's ironic. The cemetery <laughs> was buried. And two kilo two kilometers laugh. of car. Well, we can laugh. The people there are already dead. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Two kilometers of cart track. Two kilometers of the Canadian Pacific Railway line were also destroyed. I would imagine. Thus cutting off uh, Alberta or BC from the rest of Canada, essentially. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And 1.5 kilometers of the just completed Frank and Grassy Mountain Railway lines. These two railway lines just smashed. Yeah. Well, it doesn't take much. It's believed that at least 90 people died in the slide, but his records weren't the best, uh, and some bodies have never been recovered. Actually, most of them have never been recovered. The exact death toll is not known. It's kind of, it, it must be, a, knowing that if you were to drive by, it would be kind of an eerie feeling, like, oh, there's like yeah. buried bodies up there. Yeah. Only 12 bodies were recovered at the time from the shallower parts of the slide, and 80 were not accounted for. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Another six bodies were found by a road construction crew in 1922. So 19 years later, mm. they uncovered six bodies in this house belonged to Alfred Clark and his family. Mm. They'd been buried there. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. But can you imagine you're the... You're the construction crew and you're you're digging away. I'm sure they assumed they may find something like that. If you're in that area where there are 80 un, un, uh, yep. accounted for bodies, you but still, it doesn't lessen the impact of finding them. Yeah. Also from the Frank Slide Interpretive Center, it's a great site actually, I'll link to it. 17 underground mine workers on the night shift in Frank Mine were trapped by the slide, but they managed to dig their way to freedom. Holy cow. And where's their movie? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess it would be the 17 instead of... Yeah. Yeah. The whatever the... Yeah, I can't remember the number. It was a number. It, it was. Yes. It was a number. It was a number. 
Brilliant. Following the slide, Big Charlie, a mine horse, was trapped underground for a month before being found by miners. So Charlie was still alive. What on earth is a mine horse? Like, I understand it's a horse in a mine, but like what for, I guess, hauling carts? Oh, yeah, like hauling the, because it wasn't powered things in 1903 in a mine. Well, I just, I struggle with the visual of, oh, there's a horse in a mine. But a month? I guess so. It lived a month? Was it eating coal? It, I don't know. My Lord, just a treasure trove of carrots down there. And apples. And <laughs> exactly. Sugar cubes. Hay. That's where they stored all their hay. It could have been. Like, he could have, like, been trapped where his food and everything was. <laughs> Poor horse. Like, oh, because it, you can't even yell for help. He, he whinnied. Yeah, he doesn't have the, for help. Doesn't have the same effect. A brakeman for the Canadian Pacific Railway, Sid Choquette, uh, had to race across the fallen rocks of the slide to flag down an approaching passenger train. So it was coming from, I believe, mm. Spokane. And he heroically stopped the train before it smashed into the slide. Oh, wow. 15-year-old Lillian Clark decided that she would stay overnight in Frank at a boarding house where she worked rather than returning to her home in her family's cottage in Manitoba Avenue. Wow. She's the only one of her family who lived. Wow. Can you imagine, like, you're 15 years old and all of a sudden your whole family's gone? I mean, you're already, she was already working. I guess 15 was a little more mature then. Well, I don't think 15 was more mature, but you were forced to have to uh, act more mature back then. Sure. Because, yeah. She was probably, she was probably married three times by then. (laughs) Oh, boo, Mike. What? All right. That's just, that's a kid. She can work. That's fine. Sure, get, to work. <laughs> get her working. No get problem. Work. The Bansomer family's home on Manitoba Avenue was moved six meters off its foundation by the slide, but any everyone in the cottage survives. Oh wow! It's like surf and safari. <laughs> and the, holy crap! Can you imagine you're just like, no, no, I can't. You're you're, you're honk shoot, honk shoot, like sleeping away, and then all of a sudden. <laughs> Why is the house moving? It would be great, and I know this isn't the case, if it's just like in the movies and they don't even wake up until the morning and they step out their front door and they're like, what? Where am I? <laughs> oh, dear. Well, we're making fun of the people who didn't die, so that's... that's <laughs> no, 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 we're making fun of the homes. Right. The, no. Because homelessness is hilarious. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. Everybody's stopped listening yeah, now. Yeah, this has gone sideways. Yeah, this is going to be bad. <laughs> The Ennis's family home was crushed by mud and rocks of the slide, but everyone in the family miraculously survived, including their baby daughter, Gladys, who goes on to a long life and becomes the last living survivor of the slide, passing away in 1993. Oh, good. Good to hear about survivors. Absolutely. The Leach family's cottage on Manitoba Avenue, father, mother, and four sons were killed, but the three daughters survived. Still got to be tough. Imagine losing your family just suddenly. Yeah, like I wonder what, like in that day and age, did their neighbors just take them in? Or yeah, I don't know because yeah, there's no social services. No, in not in this coal mining town in the mountains. So is it like you're literally just suddenly fire them onto the train and send them to (laughs) Calgary? (laughs) You literally have nothing. So I would imagine, yeah, it's probably a lot of friends and and surviving neighbors and stuff who just or send them off to family somewhere else. But like, who sent them? I guess I don't know. Yeah. And so Carol mentioned this to me that there was rumors that went around about the entire town being buried 
and that there was only one survivor, and she was a baby girl named Frankie Slide. <coughs> right? And completely untrue. These rumors and myths are passed on for generations, so. But I loved, I loved her first album, Frankie Slide's first. That was great rhythm and blues. Frank, Frankie Slide? Yeah, yeah, a great rhythm and blues album. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's not real. It isn't real. No. I wrote Tree, but it is three. So my inner <laughs> Newfoundlander came out. <laughs> I am half Newfoundlander, apparently. So three young girls, uh, but actually three young girls, were found miraculously alive amid the destruction, which may have led to the Frankie Slide legend. Mm, yeah. Fernie Watkins was found unscathed uh, among the rocks. Uh, Marion Leach was 15 months old, so a baby, literally. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. She was thrown out of her house to safety on a pile of hay. Oh, wow. Yep. Gladys Ennis, 27 months old, mentioned above as the final survivor of the slide, was found choking in a pile of mud by her mother. Wow. <sighs> Although the town was initially evacuated, the mine was operating within a month. Of course, let's get back to business here. No kidding. Folks, we got stuff to do, and the railway was working again. So they rebuilt the railway pretty quickly. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Wow. The highway took a little longer. Well, what else did they have to do? <laughs> dig. Yeah. There was right. a lot of digging. Well, they were used to digging if they worked in the coal mine, so. Yeah, it's not like they could, you know, like, I'm just going to surf the net for a couple of weeks while this is all. But, so it's a town of 600, yeah. and and almost 100, like a sixth of the town just vanishes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. A lot of destruction and, <clears throat> and death. And, yeah. The town did eventually recover from the slide, and its population grew to over a thousand. But the eventual closure of the mine, as coal mines tend to do, yep. saw its decline to its population, which is tiny today. Right away, coal mining in the mountain itself was blamed as the cause of the disaster because they were digging underneath the mountain, the the walking mountain. Yes, but later research showed that this was only a secondary contributing factor. The formation of the mountain itself called an anticline with layers of rock within it created areas of weakness just waiting to give way with mm. natural erosion. So an anticline essentially is like, you know, like the top of a wave as it curls over. Yeah. And so part of the mountain was just kind of hanging over. So it was just waiting. That doesn't seem concerning. Not at all. That's where I would build. Let's build our town so here. I, I would build a house right underneath there. Exactly. Gives you nice shade. It would taunt the mountain. What you going to do, mountain? What you going to do? Well, the mountain showed them. It did. The formation of the mountain itself, this anticline, was pretty much the cause of it, along with uh, the spring thaw. Groundwater had frozen again because it was an unusually cold night in April. And obviously when water freezes in rock... It, it will expand. It expands, yeah. exactly, and that's what happened. I'm a scientist. Science. Uh, scientists, including Scott, believe yeah. well, there will be another event like the Frank Slide one day as the mountain continues to move a few millimeters every year. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. So, so the same mountain they're predicting another slide. Yep. Yeah. Still a town there. Would it be the Frank? Now with a museum. <laughs> Dedicated so, to the previous slide. Well, imagine the, what could imagine possibly the museum go wrong. Get the build later on. Frankie slide two. <laughs> exactly. The slidening. Yeah, the slide. The slidening. That's that's really funny. <laughs> yeah, I do what I can. All right. Well, the Frank slide was the largest landslide in Canadian history until the morning of January 9th, nineteen sixty-five. 
So this is when the hope slide occurred. Mm, we went there. Yes, we did. We'll talk about that as we go. The slide was named for the closest town, Hope, BC, just about 20 kilometers away uh, west along Highway 97. Hope is best known for being the setting of Sylvester Stallone's 1982 film, First Blood. Mm-hmm. And uh, First Blood is that U.S. Special Forces veteran John J. Rambo single-handedly taking on a crooked lawman played by Brian Denny. Oh, I loved Brian Denny. He was like a solid-looking dude. Yeah, yeah. He also played John Wayne Gacy in a movie. He's played a lot of American History X he was in there. Yep. Yeah, he's a a good tough guy. Yeah, yeah. Hope has a darker history as well for its proximity to Tashmi now called the Sunshine Valley, where Japanese Canadians were interred in camps during World War II. We plan on talking more about that, the Japanese internment camps here in British Columbia anyway, in a future episode. Yeah, that's a really dark part of Canadian history. Absolutely, quite an embarrassing little black eye. Uh, Yep. Here we are, let's go fight the Nazis on one front, and then we're going to go help with the Japanese on the other. But these people who lived here in... Canada was their home, is yep. their home, yep. and they were treated like they weren't even citizens anymore. Yep. And just locked up. David Suzuki actually was one of them. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. He's talked about it at length. It's mm. it's very, very inter- interesting. Mm. At 3.56 a.m. on January 9th, 1965, a small earthquake was measured in the area of Johnson Peak, a 2,200-meter high mountain and part of the Cascades mountain chain. It's believed the first quake caused an avalanche of snow from the peak on its south side that completely blocked traffic along the portion of Highway 97, known locally as the Hope Princeton Highway. Bernie Lloyd Beck, 27 of Penticton, was driving his friends Mary Kalmakoff, 21 of Shore Acres, BC, and her boyfriend, Dennis George Arlett, of Penticton to see Mary's family in Agassiz, Hmm. BC. The three were piled into Bernie's yellow 1957 convertible for the trip. Nice. Yeah, nice car. Middle of the night, though. Kind of a weird time to be driving. Yeah, it does seem like it. Yeah, well, I guess it was like four or five in the morning. Yeah. Mary was asleep in the back seat, and Dennis was beside Bernie in the front seat, and they were talking about this car and, you know, just having a grand old time, I'm sure. Yeah. The earlier avalanche had completely covered the highway, and they didn't see it until it was too late. They saw the snowbank coming in the darkness, but slippery conditions made it impossible to stop before hitting the 30-foot wall of snow. Oh, my God. So just boom. Wow. The hood's crumpled, and it's buried up to the windshield. Oh, Bernie could not get this car out, no matter how hard he oh, tried. Oh, I would imagine not. He, like, high-sided himself in the snow. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Everybody aboard was relatively okay, but shaken up and a bit scared. They all got out to survey the situation uh, they were in and the damage to the car. Bernie's knees had been bashed up by the steering wheel and he could barely walk. But wow, that's, uh, it's amazing to survive that. Yeah, no seatbelts in 1965. Oh, true. One person in the back laying asleep probably across the bench seat and they hit that hard near a projectile. Yeah, no kidding. But those old cars were pretty sturdy too, right? Like, Well, I don't think they're as sturdy as they are. Well, they're sturdier than they are now, but old cars are designed to crumple better than they did back then. Yeah, so So, uh, to absorb more of the energy of the crash. Yes, but, you know, so they were sturdier back then, but no safer. A hell of a lot less safe. So the car was good in stock and they'd need a shovel to get out. Luckily, a trucker named Norman Stephanician 
was towing a load of gasoline behind his aero transfer truck. He saw the taillights of the car in the middle of the road, up a ways, and so he pulled over because he didn't want to smash into it. Mm-hmm. He got out to have a look, and he noticed this massive snowbank, too. <laughs> so glad, I guess, that he didn't uh, smash into that. Mm-hmm. But as he, as he got out of his truck, uh, Mary came running up saying she and her friends were stuck in the snowbank crossing the road. They needed help, preferably a shovel to dig themselves out, which he had. Mm -hmm. A few moments later, a hay truck driven by Thomas Starchuk, 39, of Aldergrove, BC, pulled up seeing the gas truck pulled off the side of the road. He thought he would pull over and have a look too. And sure enough, here are four people digging at this yellow convertible stuck in the huge wall of snow (laughs) across the highway. Ah, that old scene. Yeah. Stephanition, the gas truck driver, decided it was time to get help. The car wasn't going to move. As they couldn't turn the trucks around, they would have to be left behind, too. He suggested all five of them go to Somalo Lodge to call the Department of Highways for help and get out of the cold. The trio in the car and the hay truck driver decided to stay and try and get the car out. Bernie didn't want to leave his baby there. His yellow convertible. Stephanition walked off and Mary climbed into the cab of the Star Chuck's truck to get warm. Bernie and Dennis kept digging, trying to free Bernie's car. As Stephanition walked, he saw a westbound Greyhound bus coming toward him, so he flagged it down and told of the road closure ahead. The Greyhound driver told him to get in, and they backed down the highway to a turnaround spot. The other trucks, they just couldn't turn around there because it was was way too narrow. So this bus driver just decided, I'm just going to back this thing all the way up. A 42-point turn, they turned Exactly. They drove to Somalo Lodge only a few minutes away, but found the phone was out there. They couldn't call anybody. And the police officer there, Bob Soden, he couldn't raise anybody on the radio either. Hmm. So the Greyhound driver, Stephanition, got into the Lodge truck, Bob Soden's police car, I guess. Mm -hmm. And they decided they'd go back to see this avalanche to help. So as they arrived, Bernie and Dennis are still digging away. Soden said uh, he would drive up to Allison Pass and get a tow truck to come help. Stephanition tried to convince Bernie and Dennis to come along. He was afraid there'd be another snow avalanche. Little did he he know Mm -hmm. there was going to be way more than that. Bernie didn't want to leave his car, and Dennis wanted to stay with him. Mary and Starchuck were still asleep in the cab of Starchuck's truck. Very smart. Let's Mm -hmm. go to sleep. To heck with it. Let let those guys do the work. (laughs) We'll go get warm and have a nap. (laughs) Stephanition and Soden headed back to Somalo. The sun would start to come up soon. At 6.58 a.m., there was an ominous rumbling, and then the entire south side of the mountain let go with a deafening crash. 48 million cubic meters of rock split from the mountain and came rocketing down on top of the four people who were now buried, crushed under rock and debris before they could escape. With the rock came another 80-plus million cubic meters of debris full of trees and whatever else was in the way of the rock slide. Wow. This slide dwarfed the Frank slide from 62 years previous, giving it now the title of largest landslide in Canada up to that point. All the water from Outram Lake was displaced and splashed up across the opposite side of the valley before settling down again with gravity. Wow, what a scene. It would like... Just it to would see be fascinating to watch it happen, but terrifying. Terrifying, yes. Especially if you're you're close enough to be killed by it. Well, especially terrifying then. Yes. <laughs> Said Captain Obvious. <laughs> the debris field was up to an astonishing 85 meters deep in parts and between two and three kilometers wide. Hmm. 
So these three young people, Mary Kalmakoff, Dennis Arlid, Bernie Beck, and the hay truck driver, Thomas Starchuk, where are they? Not doing well. Not doing well. Clearly buried under all this muck and debris. So after hearing the noise and feeling the ground shaking beneath their feet, Stephanition and Soden rush back to the area of the avalanche where they'd been only minutes later. Mm. And it looked much different now than it, it had when they <laughs> that, were there like, before. That'd be so surreal. Yeah. Like, because we're not talking about like, you know, oh, where'd my car go? It's like, no, like that whole land mass that you were just, they like, it doesn't look the same anymore. Not at all. That would be so surreal and terrifying because you have friends in there. Absolutely. So the whole side of the mountain was gone. It looked like a huge rain had washed the snow off the side of the mountain and it was now bare rock. Mm. Jeez. The highway was gone, buried under almost 70 feet of debris. They sent word out, obviously, for, for help right away. Yeah. Rescuers began arriving from the Hope side and the Princeton sides of the slide. They were told there were four people missing, and they set to work trudging through knee-deep muck and snow. Hmm. Highways Minister Phil Gallardi arrived by helicopter to survey the devastation. An RCMP dog named Prince and his handler were flown in from Cloverdale. Hmm. Cloverdale here. Yeah. Along with Bob Soden and his Alsatian named Timber. I take it as a dog? Uh, absolutely, an Alsatian is a dog. Could it, be a, a, could be a coal horse or a no, mine horse. it is not a mine horse. <laughs> they began to scour the debris field for signs of the victims and hopefully survivors. No luck. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would, it would, the size of the boulders and everything, mm-hmm. it would probably be impossible to move. A police helicopter strafed back and forth looking for signs of life. From the Hope Standard newspaper archives, which was very interesting to read, two North Vancouver RCMP officers with special training in this type of disaster, the dog and its RCMP handler and 22 volunteer search and rescue men, had been working several hours on Sunday when the body of Bernie Lloyd Beck, 27, of 269 Vancouver Avenue, Penticton, was found in the cab of one of the vehicles, a hay truck. So he must have run, like seen this coming, and thought, okay, I'm safer in the the hay hay truck. Yeah. And so like sprinted for it. Well, it's probably the largest mast in your site that looks like you could be protected in. So yeah. I, I, I can It's like get maybe that, if I'm going to get in there, it's, I'm going to just ride it. But. God, though. But like, like, you, like you're seeing this hat like coming at you. Yeah. Running for your, oh my God. Yeah. Less than an hour later, the second man, Thomas Starchuk, 39 of 28810 South Fraser Way in Aldergrove was found. Wow, I'm surprised they were able to find any yeah. so quickly. Wow. Well, they found the two of them. In this audio, George Garrett, who was a reporter for Vancouver CKNW radio station, interviewed Dan Chervenka, who was a volunteer from the Hope Search and Rescue, and he was actually the search master. Hmm. How many men have you had in there since early this morning? About 15 men. They are all members of your group, are they? Yes, and there are about uh, another 15 or so from the Princeton Rescue Group. What type of equipment are you using? We're using picks and shovels. This must be backbreaking work. Well, it is. Could you describe the debris and the rubble where the vehicle containing the two bodies was found? It's just a mass of uh, rock and mud, trees and snow. 
Under how many feet of debris were the bodies finally located? Oh, between uh, five and six feet. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like they, they were at the tail end of the slide then, which yeah. was uh, under five feet or so. Well, or it rode whatever they, the truck they were in rode to the top of the slide. Or pushed Which one. might yeah. have been the yeah. hope of, you know, that's why you want to run for this, this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Terrible. Searchers continued in earnest for four days until on Monday it appeared as though, due to the depth of debris, Mary Kalmakoff and Dennis Arlett, Bernie Beck's traveling companions, may never be found. Yeah. And that they haven't been found no. to this day. Bob Soden and his father, as well as their Alsatian named Timber, kept searching for another three weeks, but finally they reluctantly quit too. Mm. Mary and Dennis are still there somewhere entombed under the rock. Oh. It would appear erosion again was the culprit that caused this deadly slide, but there is some debate. Strangely, Johnson Peak was not done claiming lives. Oh. On August 13th, 1965, a small aircraft piloted by SWK Stevenson had been looking at the devastation from the air and somehow lost control. Stevenson crashed into the mountain and was killed. Oh, wow. A few months later, on April 23rd, 1966, another plane, this time a Royal Canadian Air Force Grumman CSR-110 Albatross from RCAF Station Comox, BC, crashed into the mountain with six men aboard. They were on a training flight. Five of the six crewmen died. Squadron leader James L. Braden, passenger. Flying officer Christopher J. Cormier, radio operator. Leading aircraftsman Robert E. McNaughton, a crewman. Flight Lieutenant Philip L. Montgomery, co-pilot. And Flight Lieutenant Peter Semek, pilot. Hmm. All died. Tragic. It's like the Bermuda Triangle of Mountains. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of strange. Yeah. The lone survivor was Flying Officer Bob Reed. He was the plane's navigator, ironically. Yeah, I was just going to say. He had been thrown clear and somehow was able to make it down the mountainside on his own. Wow. Yeah, he apparently he stood at the mountain, uh, on top of the mountain, screaming for his, his friends, looking at the rubble, but there was no answer. Wow. Yeah. Reed returned to the site 40 years later and was interviewed for an article in the Globe and Mail while looking up in the mountain. Right there, he said, pointing to a bleak stretch of rubble at the edge of a landslide chute. Most of the aircraft is still on the mountain. When the sun comes out, it glitters. You can still see bits of aluminum shining. It never rusts. Oh, wow. So he must have been there a few times if he mentions it. I would imagine he probably would frequently go there. Apparently you can hike up to see the parts of the, the wreckage that's oh. still there, but I think I'll pass on that. I totally want to. Do you? Yeah. Well, we can do it. Yeah. No, like I'm sure there's no bodies or anything. I'm not just, but just I love like abandoned, wrecked uh, stuff. So. Yeah, there's lots of that kind of stuff we can go see yeah. around here. The new highway is over the debris and at least 70 feet above where the old highway lays. You know, we've driven there before. Yep. We actually made a pilgrimage there about three years ago to take some photos. And I remember that was around a time you were going through some pretty dark stuff. Yeah, that's... Uh, and that's why like I few took mo- you. A few months after I went on leave, I believe, yeah. Yeah, that's why I took you out there. Yeah. Just to get your, your head in some fresh air kind of thing. Or to get me to a remote location and kill me. Well, I didn't do it. Yeah, well, you know, you, I foiled your plans, Mike. <laughs> The, the looming mountain with the clear scar amid the moonscape of rocks is kind of an eerie place. Yeah, there was, I remember you mentioning uh, 
bodies still being on the mountain. So it's an it's an eerie sensation uh, or feeling to be somewhere staring over this vast and, and the slide is still quite visible. Like yeah, it, you, like you still see the yes, the destruction so. in the mountain, and so it's it's very there's an eerie feeling as you're looking out there, realizing like yeah, there's there's uh, unrecovered bodies in there. Yeah, two people who died horribly violently yeah. in there. Yeah. Yep. But if anybody's interested, there's a parking spot with a viewing area and there's plaques to the dead there, including the people who died in the planes. I've been there a couple of times and one was with you. And like you mentioned, I feel like it's a huge cemetery for those two people who yes. were just never found. Yes. Although also like just beautiful. Like it is a beautiful uh, it's place. It's stunning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's a weird uh, juxtaposition between those two emotions. So the final landslide that we're talking about is uh, one that took the title away from the Hope Slide as the largest in Canada. That's a big one. It happened right here in BC at 3.27 a.m. on the morning of August 6, 2010, the day after my birthday. I have to mention my birthday. Yeah, well. So people can send me things. (laughs) Nobody ever does. More headphones? (laughs) I like my headphones. Yeah. Speaking of that, I think it's time to hear from our sponsor. There you go. At the top of the show, I told you about my new Regent on-ear headphones. They're sent to us from this week's sponsor, Studio Headphones from Sweden. The Regent is Studio's premium on-ear model with impeccable clarity in the instrumental tones and well-balanced sound. With 24 plus hours of active battery life and 20 days of standby life, the Regent is the perfect companion for you at home or on the go. It will automatically connect any device that has Bluetooth, but there's also an auxiliary cord if you don't want to use that wireless option. You can also personalize your Regent headphones with interchangeable caps such as white or black marble designs. The combination of high polished metal and matte surfaces embodies the vision of Scandinavian design. I'm using mine to listen to music and podcasts on my commute. I love the compact size, sturdy but elegant design, ease of use, and the fact that I can leave my phone in my pocket. If you want a pair of Studio headphones for yourself, go to studio.com and use our discount code, DARKPOUTINE, all one word, DARKPOUTINE, which will give you 15% off any purchase. Now back to the show. The Meager Creek landslide was so massive, it created seismic waves that were felt from California to Alaska. Wow. There was no earthquake to precipitate the event. It caused a seismic event with a magnitude of 2.6 on the Richter scale. Hmm. It wasn't an earthquake caused, but it caused an earthquake. Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. Witnesses who had just arrived at a campsite near the event outside of Lillooet were just getting ready to make camp, and they heard two cracks in the sky louder than any thunder that they'd experienced. Mm. Then the rumbling started. It felt like a freight train or a stampede coming through the woods, and the volume just kept getting louder. Oh, boy. Yeah, so, oh boy, something's coming. Yeah. They made it out by hopping in their truck and driving to higher ground, but had a harrowing couple of hours as uh, a highly mobile muck, rock, debris flowed by like water as the series of rock falls from Meager Mountain continued. Wow. So it continued like for an hour, these rock falls. Wow. 
Yeah. Holy jeez. The volume of this slide was 48,500,000 cubic meters, edging the Hope Slide's 48 million into second place in Canadian landslides. Hmm. Approximately 110,000 cubic meters of timber worth an estimated $8 million on the market were caught up in the slide and rendered smashed and useless. Mm -hmm. Debris traveled as far as 12.7 kilometers. Oh, wow and filled Meager Creek and Lillooet Valley. It dammed Meager Creek for a time, making a small lake until it burst, releasing 2.65 million cubic meters of water toward Pemberton. Jeez, that sounds like a lot of water. It is a lot of water. That's like bigger than the bathtub. <laughs> not by much, though. Not by not much. Not by I'm much. not a good judge of numbers. No, it sounds accurate. But it's bigger than the sink. It sounds pretty accurate. Field evidence showed that some of the deposition occurred along the entire travel path, but most of the debris was deposited at the mouth of Capricorn Creek in the Lillooet Valley. Luckily, this event was so remote, nobody was killed, although 1,500 homes had to be evacuated for a time just in case. Hmm. And again, seepage from groundwater in the area is what they believe that caused the massive failure of yeah. Meager Peak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't think I've ever even heard of Meager Creek. I, like, was it on the, this must have been on the yeah, news. Yeah, it was all on the news. Absolutely I don't know it was. I can't recall. Eight it. years ago? Yeah. Where were you eight years ago? Uh, coach? You had just hired me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that just threw me for a loop and I don't remember anything else afterwards. Yeah. Exactly. No, okay. Got, oh, yeah, probably. That's why. That was the call storm in uh, That's exactly our employee. We had, we had bigger fish to fry. Yeah. So I think I was probably like a combination of wanting to be dead and also just very occupied. Very occupied. Quick aside as we go. Well, this is a little story that, that really stuck out to me this week. Uh I first heard about, about it from Jennifer E., uh, a listener from Edmonton. She posted the most amazing CBC <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. article in the Yumber Yard. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. And it was titled, How Seagulls and Pepperoni Got Dartmouth NS Man Banned from a Posh BC Hotel. <laughs> yeah, I read that. This guy had brought some brother's pepperoni from Halifax for his friends in BC. Apparently he's like a, an ex-Navy man. And his friends... Wanted some brother's pepperoni, so he brought it. But this has got to be good pepperoni. So the refrigerator in his room didn't work. Okay. So he just laid it out on the on the sash of the okay. window in the hotel. Yeah. And if you've ever been, have you ever been to that the Fairmont Empress? No, I haven't been to that one. I don't think they would let you inside. It is quite, oh, quite really a nice, eh? quite a nice hotel. I clean up well. I just don't clean up. Right. But I can. So. Wow. So yeah, the Fairmont Empress is a pretty fancy hotel. Yeah, I've, I've heard it's like... It's beautiful. Yeah. He leaves his pepperoni laying on the windowsill. As one and, would. And then he goes for a walk. Gotta enjoy so it. So why not? Like it's just going to be... Your pepperoni is going to stay nice and chilled. Yeah. So when he comes back, <laughs> the hotel room <laughs> is full of 30 to 40 seagulls feasting on the pepperoni <laughs> and doing what seagulls do best, shitting everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, they do do that really well. Yeah, they poop. They're champions of Like poop. flying shit machines. Oh, champions of it. Yeah. That's where actually we got Shit Hawk. Yep. Mr. Leahy. Mr. From, Leahy. Oh, God, rest his soul. Yeah. <laughs> shit Hawks. Yep. 
So the man was subsequently banned <laughs> from the hotel and is recently applied to be allowed to stay there again. I believe it didn't it say it conclude with he was permitted. They they oh. they've removed as the ban as long as he doesn't bring any pepperoni. <laughs> you know, it's odd though. Like, I, I, you would think like getting banned from a hotel would be like you're a rock star. You were staying there. You yeah, smashed threw, threw everything a TV out the window. Like it's not like the man was like. I'm going to lure in a bunch of seagulls and brought some, I brought some pepperoni all the way from Halifax to it lure in these seagulls. It wasn't, yeah, well, I don't think it was his intent. No, it was clearly. Just, he was just irresponsible. Uh, yeah, but a lot of hotel, anyways, I'm just thinking that's a bit. If he's from Dartmouth, he knows there is such a thing as a seagull. No, I know, but you're not thinking like here, this will bring in. I could see if seagulls. it was some dude from Saskatchewan. Yeah, they don't, they, they don't, well, they don't know what a sea is, let alone gulls. Yeah. But. Yeah. Our friends at the 36 Times podcast, they do weird crimes and weird stuff like this. So they said that they might talk about this in a future podcast. So I think they should check out their podcast because they are awesome. They should, yeah. Krista and Lily are very nice people. They tolerated me as (laughs) I talked about Oak Island. Oh, yeah. And listened to them talk about Ogopogo. Post a link to this article in our show notes for your perusal. Or just go to the Umberyard. Just go to the Umberyard, yeah. You can join the Umberyard. Over it. 200 people have so Is that, far. Are we up to 200 now? Yep. Wow. But your dad, because he couldn't share anything, he added like seven. What do you mean he added seven? He added seven people to the Umberyard because he couldn't, he could, <laughs> because he didn't know how to share. <laughs> oh, oh, dad. So they're probably you. a bunch of people who, who are like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> well, I would imagine if he's adding them, he probably has a... a inkling that they uh, would like it <laughs> or they're just highly confused at this point in time it could be either way either way welcome to the yumber yard <laughs> yeah <Yep>. dad <laughs> he's a funny guy oh i love him yeah so as usual we will do our patreon shout outs right now and we have quite a few more actually i was very surprised that's awesome first up is stephanie p from nanaimo well, hey, Stephanie P. That's where the bars are from. That is where they're from. Yeah. Delicious. I don't I haven't had one in a while. Stephanie came in at our eager beaver level. Hey, right on. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. You rock. Cynthia. Hey, Cynthia. Thank you. Cambo. Cambo of True Crime Island. It's a, an Australian podcast. Yes. And he's a pretty great guy. So, yeah. Many, many thanks, Cambo. Thank you, Cambo. And Karen from the Stat Podcast pledged as well. Wow, thanks, Karen. Yep, the Getting Off podcast. Oh. <laughs> yeah, not that kind of oh. getting off, Scott. Yeah. Shall and we? I'm sorry, Kyla, but you are not the only Prime Minister anymore. Oh, dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. We have Ashley uh, from Seattle. Ashley, wow. Washington. Wow. Yeah. The Strictly Homicide podcast also pledged to us. Wow. And Sophia... From Davis, California. Hi, Sophia. Thank you very much. Very, very many thanks. Thank you so, so much to all of our uh, patrons. If you want to, you can donate to us at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. It's helping us to keep the poutine coming. And hopefully we'll be able to, I'm looking at purchasing some more software that's going to make the podcast sound even better. Will I sound sexier? I highly doubt that. More Urkely? <laughs> More Urkely, yes. Steve Urkel. Scott Urkel. 
Uh, you can also send us some uh, donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. And you can use that email address to get, get a hold of us for anything you like. And we get lots and lots of email. I'm very surprised by how much email <laughs> I get, actually. Uh, and it's, it's sometimes kind of hard to keep up with. But people keep sending me great story ideas. It's, uh, I'm just blown away by, by the story ideas that people send. Uh, apparently there was another wrestler whose name is Paul Bunyan and the Canadian giant. I remember him, yeah. Gary Robbins. Yeah. Yeah, so Hazel, her roommate in university in the 80s, met him at a local gym and they dated for a few months. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was sure fun to hang around with somebody who was seven foot five. Holy crap. Jeez. Seven foot five. That's a that's a big dude. Substantial. So, so th- thanks, Hazel, for sending me that interesting tidbit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah, and uh, Erica has been doing some, uh, from North Van, she's been doing some research for us. We've got some interesting, an interesting show that's, I, I'm going to try to put together from this research. There isn't as much around the murders as I would like, but there's a lot around a particular bank robbery. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So pretty fascinating stuff. You can check out our website at www.darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. Tell your friends about us. Especially fun. We've mentioned the Yumber Yard. Come there and uh, we'll be silly with you. Oh, yes. Silly is what we do best. Yeah, I, th- I think people really get our sense of humor there. <laughs> yes, they really do. Yeah. yeah. It, we are, I feel right at home. Yes. It's, yes, it's totally. It's very strange. How, it's crazy because uh, we didn't really try to guide it in that direction it or just, anything. Naturally, kind of happened. Yeah. Well, we've had some really great. There's other great podcasters in there. Uh, for example, Tyler from Minds of Madness yep. is there. He he actually helped us in our in our uh, audio difficulties last week. He tried <laughs> to tried to salvage the audio for me. But uh, what what happened to the audio? Scott? My uh, so I've been doing some detective work. Okay. Yeah, I brought in Columbo, and we, uh, so what I think actually happened was uh, the audio unit we used, the digital audio workstation, uh, when plugging the USB into the computer, I just don't think I pushed it in all the way. And so by default, it used my laptop's, nice laptop though, my laptop's uh, internal mics. That's why you sounded very quiet and distant. And I sounded louder, well, I, I am, but echoey. I am kind of distant at times. Yeah, it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. It's like the littlest hobo. We're using a different machine now anyway, so it's all better. Yeah. Yeah, you can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast directory like iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, mm-hmm. or at our host Podbean. And keep those reviews coming on iTunes. Love it, love it, love it. So that's it for this week. Is it? Is it? I feel sad. Why do you feel sad? Because we need to do more show. Yeah. Well, we will do more show. Oh? And it's the after show. <gasps> that's right. I'm happy now. Yeah. Are you? Yeah. Let you see my smile. Okay. Scott's trying to smile. It's making me uncomfortable. Well, yeah. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>
Launch Showcase. They call me the Christchurch Carver. Based on the international bestseller. This trademark souvenir. Can't stop thinking about the apple. Usually he eats it. I've got a copycat on my hands. I know who you are, Joe. I know what you do. You have two days to find a copycat. This is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it. Dark City, The Cleaner, all new Wednesdays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.